there's something I think most most entrepreneurs need to really understand, and that's how you your most important decisions are made at the moments that you are experiencing the most fear. Hey everybody, welcome uh, to another episode of The Inventive Journey. Um, I'm your host, Devin Miller. Um, for those of you new to the podcast, I am a uh, serial entrepreneur as well as the uh, founder and managing partner for my uh, intellectual property firm, uh, Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with patents, trademarks, and copyrights. So today we have another great uh, <clears throat> guest on the podcast that is uh, going to talk about his journey, and uh, currently he's working on uh, some UV lighting to help to uh, combat some of the um, COVID-19 or uh, stuff that's going on, but also uh, has a lot of experience and worked in the movie industry. So quite an interesting journey. So excited to have you on. So this is Justin. Uh, Excited to have you on, Justin. Good to meet you, sir. So maybe, uh, you know, I'll let you introduce yourself because you'll do a much better job than I ever could. But why don't you go ahead and just uh, introduce yourself and tell a little about your journey. Well, my name is Justin Evans, and um, I'm the uh, founder and inventor um, at Anthem One Incorporated. Uh, For about the past year, we've had a product at market called Anthem One, which is an LED lighting system that has interchangeable LED uh, light cards. And, um, uh, but as the pandemic, as, as it became clear that the, the pandemic was going to hit U.S. shores and uh, that we had a very serious problem on our hands, our company did a very quick pivot and came up with uh, this, this guy here. This is our first UVC uh, light card. So this is a light source. That's, that's how thin it is. Um, and this, this light card outputs more UVC energy than any other device on the planet. Hmm. And, um, and that's what our current focus is. So maybe give, and that's a great intro. So maybe, maybe now we jump back because uh, that, that, that shuts or cuts to the chase and gives everybody where you're at today, but maybe get her back up. So you did, you've done it. You started out in the movie industry or did and helped. Right. Uh, and I think it was produced uh, some of the movies, including the one on the poster behind you. And then you yeah. kind of decided to pivot and get more into the lighting. So maybe rewinding almost to when you were in the movie industry, what, how did you, or what that journey was and then how you got into lighting. Um, so I went to NYU film school and uh, uh, dropped out halfway through my senior year. Mm. Uh, my mother's still very disappointed about that and is looking forward to the day I go back and finish my degree. <laughs> someday, um, right? Someday. So um, and I bounced around Hollywood and, and bounced around from job to job, working as an art director in video game companies or as a cinematographer or camera operator. And uh, I got the opportunity to direct and, and be the cinematographer for my first feature film in about mm. 2008. And uh, spent the better part of a year prepping the movie and putting it together and, and finished it uh, in, in mid-2010. Um, and it did great. It, it, it was in 46 film festivals. It won Best Picture 18 times. It had a very small theatrical release. Uh, but in the making of the movie, um, we, we found a massive bottleneck in, in the making of, of media itself. And it's all about the lights. Mm. Um, we were about three days. No, no, no. no it, sorry, let me back up. About a week before we started shooting, 
um, we realized that Terminator Salvation had blown a power transformer and it affected one third of the power grid for all of New Mexico. New Mexico is a big state. Most people don't realize that it's the third largest state in the United States. So it's not that That's much. a lot of people affected. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is huge. And, and so it was causing rolling brownouts everywhere. And, and we planned this movie for a location uh, at an abandoned prison just outside of Santa Fe that had available power. And we were thrilled because every single circuit, because this was used to be a former prison, was 40 amp or 60 amp power. And so we knew we could plug really, really big lights into everything. Mm. Home is prepped for this. And now we've got rolling brownouts and no power at all at our location. So we're scrambling to get our hands on, you know, a crystal sink generator, about 60, 60 kilowatt generator. And Terminator Salvation is snapping up faster than my little team can get them. So mm. end up driving about 75 miles away to a little town called Las Lunas, pick up a generator. It's the only one that, that's left. We get it. We managed to get it. But we're, we're shooting the movie. Every day, I can feel my schedule slipping through my fingers. And by day 10, we were three days behind schedule. And for a little movie like that, it's death. Mm. You, you could very well be in a position where you just can't finish the film. Hmm. And, um, and, uh, I'm not proud of this, uh, but I'm, I'm going to be a very honest person here. I, I kicked a door off its hinges in front of one of my biggest. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty good or a pretty hard kick. Yeah, I, I was, I was pissed and, uh, and I turned to my investor and I said, I don't want to be a filmmaker anymore. Hmm. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, I don't want to do this. These lights don't make any sense. If Charlie Chaplin to walk, walk onto this film set, he wouldn't understand the Red One digital camera that we're using, and he wouldn't understand a 50-inch television and the ability to edit in real time on a MacBook. All of that would blow his mind. But he'd look at the lights, and he'd know how to use them, and all of his knowledge would still apply. And that doesn't make any sense to me. So when we finished the movie and it was on the festival circuit, that, that investor, who also happened to, to be my attorney, um, he said, I'll give you a little bit of money. Let's get this out of your system. Uh, mess around with whatever you want to mess around with and uh, then let's get back to making movies. And uh, the prototype that I came up with blew his mind. Uh, he left his partnership at his law firm, cashed out, took a second mortgage on his house and, and gave me uh, the capital to start the business so that we could invent what is Anthem One. Wow. Well, he, he was all in then. He, was, he must have really believed in you. He was all in and, and he's still uh, our second largest invest, our second largest owner and uh, uh, when when our payday comes, he he deserves every bit of it because his kind of passion and belief is very very rare in investors mm. and sobriety about understanding how money really works and how quickly you can burn through it um, is also rare amongst uh, investors. And so, if it weren't for him, I I wouldn't be here. So thanks, Angelo. <laughs> hey, he he deserves at least the things, if not nothing more. Um, yeah. that, that's inter- that's, that's, that is a rare investor. I mean, a lot of times when you get investors, and I've worked with some great investors and ones that have absolutely been the ones that are in it for the long haul and are there with you. And you got others that are going to say, if this doesn't make me a, you know, a return on investment within six months or a year, they start to get mad and get lawsuits and get people angry and everything else. So you can get on both sides. It's always much better to find those investors that are there with you for the long haul. We had those investors too. We had some <laughs> highly toxic investors that made this journey much more difficult and uh, uh, significantly less enjoyable. But uh, luckily there was a handful of really good ones um, that really understood what we were trying to invent. And, and we, we ended up doing more than we intended to. Um, 
And so along the way, the, the, the critical change to our technology, we were just trying to make a modern LED-based movie light. That was our original ambition. And of course, we wanted to be best in class. Sure. So that meant I had to sort of reskill myself as an engineer because one of the things I found, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs should know, if they get into doing a hardware startup, is that the engineers that will work for you as a freelancer are not the best. They're the people that couldn't get a job at a, a, a real company. And so they're really they, most of the time. There's a rare diamond in the rough, but yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah. Um, maybe there's a diamond in the rough. I, I was not lucky enough to find any. Um, a lot of, it takes a lot of going through the sand to find that one diamond. Yes. And, and so, uh, and, and in particular, my experience has been American engineers tend to be extremely arrogant. So we, we did much better with electrical engineers from, from Eastern Europe hmm. and, mechanical engineers um, from anywhere in the world other than the United States um, mm-hmm. as freelancers. Uh, mm-hmm. If I could afford someone who works at Apple, we wouldn't have been the startup. So, <laughs> um, uh, and, and, but where, where most people get stuck is they expect the engineers to do all the work and engineers are not inventors and they're not supposed to be. Um, yep. Their job is really to make sure that the invention is sound, but it's not their job to invent the invention. So, so for me to be able to really pull this off, I had to reskill myself. And so that meant buying dozens of books on Amazon, um, reading books on, on electrical engineering, watching hundreds of hours of YouTube videos, um, doing everything I could to get myself to a point where I could communicate effectively with mechanical, electrical, and firmware engineers. And, um, and that was a good part of the journey. And, and along through that process, one question kept coming up, question I kept asking which is why are LEDs permanently soldered into lights? Mm. And the answer was always because that's how it's done. And, and what no one could quite articulate, but it took me a while, but I figured it out, is that engineers have a tendency to do what they were taught in school, which is what their instructors were taught, which is what their instructors were taught. And LEDs are still, from, from a conceptual standpoint, seen as a component that goes onto a printed circuit board. Yep. And printed circuit boards don't come in and out of systems. They're permanent. You screw them in or solder them in, they stay permanently in a, uh, in a system. So that's, it's, they taught, that's, that's what they taught me when I went to engineering school. Okay. So, so this <laughs> bias means that someone is looking at an LED and thinking of it as, as the equivalent as a resistor or a transformer. Right. And, and it's just a component that goes on the, to a PCB. But we were looking at the LED in a very different way. We were seeing the LED as more like a RAM or a hard drive. And we kept saying, why on earth would we build a device that had obsolescence of 12 months? We know that LEDs are improving on, on now a Moore's Law-like curve. It's not quite as exponential as Moore's Law, but it's similar to it. And we don't want our customer to buy a system in, say, January 2019 and then re- regret that they bought that in January 2020 because now all of our LEDs are 15% brighter. And we thought, well, or they have new wavelengths, so they have different dyes and all of that that goes in. I work, I work with one of the startups I work with does a lot with LEDs on more of a uh, op, or a spectrometer type thing for medical measurements. So we could talk way longer than we need okay. to on all the LEDs and intricacies of it. But that's yeah. So good. what we focused on was then a way to make the LEDs come in and out of the system, and that's what this is all about. So. It turned out that the bias, this, this at its core is based on what's known as an LED COV. Mm. And, um, 
An LED COB is, is used in light bulbs across the world, all sorts of instruments. You're, the company you just referred to might even use a small version of an LED COB. Uh, we wanted to turn that LED COB, though, into an actual end-user product, something that was sleek and sophisticated, had an Apple-like feel to it, and could come in and out of the system. And so uh, we're now patent-pending on the technology that makes that possible. And it meant moving the, the positive and negative junction from the front side of the LED COB to the back, changing mm -hmm. some of the alert, uh, internal electronics, and coming up with a method that would have this under both compression and conduction at the same time, but that could decouple so that you could pull it in and out like a video card. And so once we I have to interrupt, just because you said my favorite word, which is patent pending or patent, given that I have a patent attorney, that's yes. always one that perks my ear. What is just the 30 second aside, and I don't want to interrupt your story. What has yeah. been your, uh, what's been your experience or how have you liked or disliked uh, doing the patent process? Because I get uh, inventors that are on both sides and people that sometimes it's been a great process and other times they've absolutely hated it. Um, I think it's a fine process. I think there are some flaws with the U.S. patent system. Hmm. Uh, uh, I'm not thrilled that we've moved to a first-to-file uh, uh, methodology, but um, I also understand the logic behind it. I think that most inventors um, who are probably complaining about it need to see it as like the equivalent of the SATs. It's not a measurement of your actual intelligence, but it is a measurement of your ability to it to explain what you can do so someone else can understand it. And if you're not willing to play that game, then maybe there's a problem with your communication strategy. I don't have a problem with it. I like, as an example, the first patent we did was a design patent and it was uh, rejected on our initial application. And it was my fault. I was stupid. I was insisting that certain lines on the illustration didn't mean what the patent office was interpreting it to mean, and they were being thick-headed. They had every right to reject our design patent. And mm -hmm. when I went to a phenomenal patent illustrator, he was able to take the art that I had come up with, clean it up, do it right, um, explain to me the symbolism of it, and mm -hmm. get us to reapply and get us approved within a couple weeks. And, and, and I think that that humbling moment really opened my eyes to what it meant to apply for a utility patent and, and to apply the same sort of humility to the system. And, and it doesn't mean I'm thrilled with the system, but on the other hand, um, it's, I don't think it's that bad a system either. So, well, you're, you're kind of in stuff. the middle. You're not hating it, not quite loving it. So someday when I actually, when I work on your patents, no, that's good. Then you'll, then yeah. I'll get you over to loving it. But no, that's, that's a, I just was curious because, uh, I said, and most of the time, it's not the attorney. It's, I like how you almost put it, that kind of to your point, I almost would say once, sometimes inventors take it as, if I, my patent gets rejected, they almost take it as an affront to their invention, right? Yes. They're, reject, they're saying my invention's not good enough. And if they only understood how great my invention was, they right. would make sure, it would certainly get as patentable. It's really not, the examiner doesn't dislike or like your invention. No. And most of the time, he could care less what you, how you, it's more of are you doing convincing him that you, what you're doing is different than what's out there, and if you can do that in the way that they want or they're used to, then it goes the process goes well. And if you play kind of as you said they play by their rules or you know put it in the format they like, it will go much better. If you don't, then it's a you, you, uh, it feels like you're kicking against a prick. So I like how you said that. Absolutely, and and um, uh, I think a lot of. A lot of inventors, they think the invention is makes sense in their head. They're done. 
There's nothing else to be done. There's so much. That's the beginning of the journey. Mm. And for me, a lot of it was becoming comfortable with the kind of language that is associated with patenting intellectual property and, and getting to a point that I understood the difference between something that was clever and something that was novel. And I could come up with many a clever thing, but that doesn't mean that any of those are patentable. It needed to be novel. Yep. And, and understanding on a, on a gut level the difference between something that's clever and novel. Um, and, and how to specify what novel is, because novel might, might mean, okay, I'm trying to patent something, and I'm pat- patenting this iteration of it within this specific application only. Yeah. And, um, and then I think the last thing is any inventor should know is even if you get your patents, who the hell cares if you don't have the finances to defend it in court? Yep, no, that's true. So, so all of this at the end of the day is, is just one, one small step on a, on a very lengthy journey. No, and, and I completely agree. It's, it's, it's the idea, too often the idea, and we've got it way off the tangent, but I'd like to get back to your original okay. story, but it's just one that I always enjoy, hence why I'm a patent attorney, um, right. that you, know, you get too many inventors. Oh, if I just get a patent, then everybody's going to be knocking down my door to, get a, to buy it or to get a license. And you know, why, why that on very rare occasion, one out of a million type of thing does happen. Most yeah. of the time, it's a part that goes in your business plan or part of the whole business. It's an important part, just like having marketing and financing and everything else. But you have to say that it's a part of the business. You don't build a pat or a business around the patent; rather, it part is a part of it. So, now that we jumped way down into a tangent that I thoroughly enjoyed, so yeah. now, so one question I don't think we hit on is: so give the maybe give an insight of how long were you working on this before you kind of got your first product? You were you're getting pre-COVID. We're getting ready to launch. Uh, we I started the business in 2012. And mm. we did not have a viable product until 2019. So mm. it was a seven-year journey. And, um, and, and this gets to another part of what I think a lot of inventors and entrepreneurs, particularly hardware inventors, don't understand. You can have an invention, but that is not yet a final product. You can have a final product, but that product hasn't been designed for mass manufacturing. Mm. And you can have a product that's designed for mass manufacturing, but you don't have the supply chain behind it to actually scale. And so we had to do all of that. So we, not only did we invent the technology, uh, but then I, I, I speak Mandarin and I spent a tremendous amount of time. Um, I do too. That's interesting. Sorry. Oh, I just, uh, I lived in Taiwan for a couple of years. Old Zai Beijing, Leon Nian. Ming Bai? Ming Bai. Ming Bai? All right. So we won't, we won't speak too much Chinese because uh, that nobody else will probably get what we're saying. But yeah, so I, I served uh, I served a, a mission for my church in Taiwan for a couple of years. So I didn't go quite to China, but I was in Taiwan, which is both Mandarin. So Okay. So, um, so I built a global supply chain with factories in five countries. Mm. And, um, and so that meant about every three to four months I was going to uh, Shenzhen or Taipei for, you know, two to three weeks at a time. And, mm. um, and we had to do all of that to be able to build the technology. And, and, and I, I think perhaps the most interesting part of the journey was that, uh, oftentimes the most enjoyable for me, uh, because what I would find is that what an American engineer who had never worked in a factory because they saw themselves as a white collar worker and, 
liked that they worked in an office and liked that they worked behind a desk, behind a computer. Uh, they'd never gotten their hands dirty and actually worked in, say, a CNC shop or a PCB manufacturer, or they'd never stepped foot into an anodizing facility. And, and so because of that, their idea of what tolerances were, were not based in reality. Yeah. So we would go in there and we would find it went both ways. What they would think would be easy was hard and what they thought was hard would be easy. And so um, I spent a lot of time at, at our factories working as a day laborer. And I would show up in torn, je torn jeans and a t-shirt and I say, I'm here just to work. And in fact, I'll show you um, one of the things I am most proud of. Um, so this is um, a sample piece of, of aluminum billet that I hand polished at a mold making facility in Shenzhen. Um, I was apprenticing under a master uh, mold maker and um, she's an amazing person. She makes maybe $850 a month and absolutely loves her job. And she taught me, you know, how to do wet sanding um, starting at 50 grit, going all the way to about 2000 grit sandpaper, rotating directions um, to the point that we could get a mirror polish so that the insides of our molds were capable of ejecting um, polycarbonate uh, lenses. And uh, if it were not for her education, I would not understand molds um, uh, one-tenth as well as I do. It's, it's her that, that really got me. To, to get the process, how many days it takes, how many humans does it take, uh, what can be roboticized, what can't be, um, what part's just an art, and you really do need to get an artist who really understands this stuff. And, and it was all of that kind of knowledge that I found was generally lacking amongst the engineers that I was working for, or working with. And, um, and it's the part of the journey that I absolutely loved. Well, that's cool. So now jumping for, I think that's all very interesting conversation. I, I love to see the, the show and tell, so to speak. It's always fun to see what the things that you worked on as you went through everything. So now jumping forward. So you went through all of that work, left the movie industry after producing your movie, which I still have yet to see, but I promise I'll see it or I'll see it soon. You can see it on iTunes. So it's, all right. I'll have to watch it. From a walking dead, uh, James Cromwell from God knows how many movies and Jason Moore from the Punisher. So that's a pretty good uh, people, a lot of or host of people that uh, went on to from your movie went on to make a lot of a lot of uh, other cool. Yeah, yeah, it's a little 1970s spy thriller uh, about a KGB agent that's defecting to the United States. Um, um, but but once we once we realized within Amphim One that we had come up with a, with a really easy way to get LEDs in and out of the system, mm. uh, we realized we we invented more than we'd intended. Um, the original goal was just so that you could pop it in and out like a video card um, mm. or, or RAM. And when the next set of LEDs would be 15% brighter, you could pop mm. it in and your 200 watt system would still be 200 watts, 4.5 amps. But instead of outputting, say, 22,000 lumens, I would put out 25,000. Um, right. We realized we could have a relationship with every LED company on the world. And that meant that we started experimenting with what other kind of LEDs can we do? And uh, we came out with a light card that's uh, military grade, um, 940 nanometer infrared, um, an agriculture card. And theoretically, we'd, we'd worked it out on paper, uh, medical grade sterilizing card. 
And the only reason we didn't do the medical grade sterilizing part at first is that the LEDs were ridiculously expensive. Mm. Um, put this in a context, a single little tiny LED, um, you know, one of these little guys, and this, this sucker has uh, about 160 approximately on the surface. Mm. Um, for our, our daylight card, our light card that looks just like daylight, um, those LEDs are maybe five cents. These are $15 each. Mm. And so, so it was so expensive, none of our investors believed in this. Um, every single one of them said it's a pipe dream. Um, I don't know why you're obsessed with this medical sterilization. It's a very small industry. Um, uh, we don't want you to pursue it. And, um, and when COVID hit, um, I decided that I'd pay for it out of my own pocket. My, my wife was my greatest supporter. And, and we quickly put one of these into production thanks to our American Express card. And <laughs> thank, uh, you, American Express. thank you, American Express, for being an investor. And thank you for my wife for believing in me. And, and to put this into context, our, our nearest competitor is a mercury vapor system that's about three and a half feet tall. And it outputs um, 90 millijoules per square centimeter or mm-hmm. per centimeter squared, I should say. Um, per minute. Let me repeat that. 90 millijoules per centimeter squared per minute. Okay. This outputs 2,850 millijoules per second. Hmm. And so what what this does, when, when you get that kind of potency, this is the world's first mass volume sterilizer. We can sterilize not a little tiny surface, but an entire hospital theater, movie theaters, airplanes, shopping malls, restaurants, everything in our world that we're currently afraid to go back into, we can now sterilize in a very short period of time with nothing more than a blast of nearly invisible light. And, um, and we're, we're conducting additional studies as we speak. We wouldn't make claims if they weren't backed up uh, by a tremendous amount of research, but we've been very lucky to partner with Temple University, uh, Mayo Clinic, and George Mason University. Um, Temple has already come out with their initial results, and they found that from a 16-inch distance, uh, Anthem 1 deactivated uh, Zika virus uh, in 15 seconds to a three-log setting. That means 99.9% of all the viruses were eradicated um, in 15 seconds. And so it could be a tremendous game changer in how we re-sterilize PPE or EMT vehicles or uh, elder care facilities. The list goes on and on. That's, right. that's, that's almost cool. kind of the idea you could have kind of like metal detectors that you walk through in the airport. You can almost have sterilization that you just, if you're going to go into the, you know, the elderly care or facilities or the nursing homes or anything or into a shopping mall or that, you just walk through that it kills at least everything on the surface. doesn't kill it, you know, inside of you if you're still sick, but at least sterilizes everything that you bring in and out. So that's really cool. One thing I do want to jump back in on is uh, yeah. just that, um, that we glossed over, but I think that we talked a little bit before the, before the podcast on was that you had, you know, a pretty good amount of clients built up and you had some, you know, fairly name or, you know, name, big names and everything else within the movie industry or at least lighting industry for filming in that. And then you had COVID come along that basically everybody started dropping out, wiped it out and everything. So how did you, how did you react or how did you decide to pivot or how, you know, what, how did you deal with that? It was devastating. Uh, uh, As of January of 2020, 
uh, we, our clients were so prestigious and their, their budgets were so that they wanted to buy from us uh, that had we been able to collect on all those invoices, we would have had nine months of operating expenses in the bank. Mm. And within three weeks, we went from having, you know, these invoices that would have had nine months of burn rate uh, to having zero. It was, it was, it was a cliff. I'd never seen anything like it. We had the Olympics. We had the final four. Uh, we had a fee. Uh, we have ongoing uh, clients like the Canadian military, um, Ferrari, uh, Walt Disney world. And every single one of these customers one by one said, unfortunately, because of COVID-19, we're canceling our, our live events for this year. You know, it's, we were just to the point that Steven Soderbergh's gaffer, uh, was testing our lights to roll out on a feature film he was going to shoot in Detroit, and then the movie was canceled. Doesn't need the lights anymore. And Ferrari wanted to light an entire fairway in Pebble Beach with a display of 50 Ferraris, and we were working through the whole process of how we were going to do this on, on battery power, so there'd be no cables anywhere. And suddenly the event's canceled, and the same with the Final Four, and the same with the Olympics. And so uh, our, our business was devastated overnight. Um, I don't know why I wasn't really focused on that. What I was more focused on was the promise of what UVC could do. Because as everyone kept talking about COVID-19, 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 I knew that we'd always had this design sitting on the shelf that our investors did not believe in. And mm. that could I just dust it off, we'd, we'd have something that could really be a weapon against COVID-19. And, and, um, I'm going to be honest, it's, it's my wife that made it possible. And, and hmm. there's something I think most, most entrepreneurs need to really understand. And that's how you, your most important decisions are made at the moments that you are experiencing the most fear. Hmm. So I'm facing bankruptcy. We have no clients. I still have to pay rent. I still have to pay utilities. And, and my brain is, is fixated on how all of our, our, our bank account has been drained. Mm. And it's my wife who says, if we're going to go bankrupt, let's run at that wall as fast as we possibly can. <laughs> you need to dust off UVC. And I quickly spoke with a couple of my engineers in, in Taiwan and mm. uh, the sticker shock was astounding. And, and my wife and I suddenly knew that we were going to go from having zero debt to a tremendous amount of debt to get the first five of these made. And she didn't even blink. And that's, that's the reason our business got saved. Her rationality is what saved us. Well, that, that's an important partner to have on your team then. Yes. So Absolutely. third, thank you. First one was to your lawyer that was your investor. Second one to American Express. And third one to your wife. Although the yeah. wife is the most important. So we'll put that one first. Uh, I, this is a bunch of books and I think every entrepreneur needs to know it. Your, your first and foremost business partner is your family right. they are behind you on this journey, because this is, it's not a fun journey. It's, it's pain. Uh, you're really saying to yourself, how can I go on a, to bed on a bed of nails every night? Um, if your family's not willing to go on that journey with you, you're never going to make it. And that, that I completely agree with. I just got really lucky that I married very, very well when I was 22. 
I, I, I'm right there with you. I, mar- I married at 22 as well. So we both married at the same age and we both got lucky with great wives. So I have all, I have a whole bunch of uh, businesses I'm part of, including my law firm. And my wife has been number one cheerleader and been great. And so I, I completely couldn't agree with you more that they are the number one team member that you need on your team. And if you don't have it, that you're going to, you're setting yourself up for failure. And if you have a great uh, spouse on board, it can make the complete difference. So we have run into the, to the end of the podcast. There's way more things that I'd love to talk about than we ever have time to, which is always how I feel. There's always so many interesting things we could dive into. And you kind of already gave what would be the, the, the number or the advice you'd give for startups. So we'll give that as the, the advice that the startup should take. Um, but the other question I always do, and we'll kind of end with, is what was the number one or the biggest mistake or business mistake you made along your journey and the reason is, is you always hear all the highlights, right? You get to hear the best things that people did. And I always made the right decision. I pivoted and everything went perfectly and you never get to hear the mistakes. So what's the biggest mistake, business mistake you made? God, I made so many. <laughs> <laughs> Choose one of the biggest. Uh, uh, top of the list. I think the biggest business, mis- dis- big, biggest business mistake I made we had a particularly wealthy and aggressive investor that mm. wanted to get to market as fast as we possibly could. Mm. And I allowed him to pressure me when the product was not quite ready yet. And, and he read some of the same books that everybody reads and he would paraphrase stuff that really applies to software companies. Like, you know, just get your minimum viable product out the door. <laughs> I we, always hate that term. I hate it so much because it doesn't apply to hardware. Oh, it, and even even in software, and because I, I worked with some software, it's like minimally viable. Why not take the product, the best product within the constraints that you have, right? So if you only have so much funding, you only have so much time. Let's see the best product we can have. Rather, it always to me more sounds like let's put out the crappiest product as quick as we can, rather than the best. Yes, can. yes. and that whole attitude of you know run fast and and don't don't think twice and we'll fix it as we go. Uh, if anyone's familiar with the Wallace and Gromit short, where Wallace is on top of the train, putting the train track down as the train is going over it. That's what it ends up feeling like. Yeah. If we had slowed down for three months, we would have saved ourselves a year of heartache because mm-hmm. we tried to come out with the product at the beginning of 2018. And while it technically worked, there was so much more additional real world testing we needed to do before the technology was really mature. And we could have done that in a three month time window. And instead we spent a year chasing our own tail because I listened to the bad advice from an investor who just wanted to make a quick buck. That was probably the worst decision I made. And when we, when we corrected that and I could look, I could look back at the choices I'd made. I knew that number one, it was not in my character. I like, I am a perfectionist by, by nature and I like things to be well-made. And, and number two, I'm a scientist by nature. And I knew that we had not done enough testing and I had pawned myself into thinking that he was right to come out with it prematurely. That's, that's the biggest mistake I made. The second, I think we pointed out, is when we had raised money, I paid. Hmm. And I didn't understand how much, how quickly you're going to burn through capital. And I would hear from people, one of the dumbest things I've ever heard is, you know, you're the CEO you should be making more than your engineers. And I believed that in the first days of the company. Now, once we got to about year two, I realized my job 
is to make that capital last as long as it possibly can because capital is precious. It's hard to raise. And every single time you do, you don't get the capital for free. It comes with a personality attached. And you may not get along with that personality. And the more of these that you pile on, the more people that you would never have hired to be an employee suddenly have an influence over the way that you're running your business. And so your own best interest to pay yourself as little as possible. So the capital, so your burn rate will, will be as long as possible and you can do your best job. Those, those would be the two. Go back those are change. the two great mistakes, but it sounds like you learned a ton or a ton from them. And it's ones that I've heard before. And I think that there, there is a lot of wisdom in that. So appreciate you sharing those. Well, we have run out of time, but I want to make sure before we end that you get that for, whether it's people that want to buy your product, want to get involved, reach out to you, investors, angel, the right type of investors, if you need it, (laughs) whoever it is, what is the best way to get involved with you or to reach out to you or find out more about your company and your product? Um, uh, Customers who who would like to purchase an Anthem One can go to anthemone.com and that's A-N-T-H-E-M-O-N-E.com. And, um, but we should specify that right now we are strictly focused on medical sterilization sales. So mm. we are currently not taking any media cut. We are only working with hospitals uh, and, and governments to get this out to as many hospitals as we possibly can so that hospitals can re-sterilize their PPE uh, in record time. So, um, so if there's any hospitals, any doctors uh, that are listening, uh, please reach out to us at anthem1.com and, uh, and we'd love to help you out. Perfect. Well, I appreciate that. I will make sure to include that in the show notes as well. Hope that uh, you can get the products and uh, start to help to sterilize and to use that to, to come combat what a lot of people are dealing with. So that I very much appreciate sharing it. It's been a great time to have you on the show. Always get to the end of these and I wish I had more time because there's always so many more fun things that we could talk about, but I appreciate you coming on. Um, for those of you that uh, are listeners, um, Make sure to support him to or to support Anthem One and to go to there and to share it with those that are in need of the product. Um, if you're an inventor or working with a startup or small business, if you need help, um, feel free to reach out to me. I'd happy to help with pat- your patents and trademarks or copyrights and uh, want to be there along your inventive journey to make sure that uh, we can support you in any way you can. Thanks for everybody for joining the episode. And until next time.